So thank you so much for coming in today. I've wanted you on the podcast to talk about this really important subject since, was it March when you did your event? Yeah. yeah, and we obviously had some trouble syncing the diaries up. So I really appreciate you being patient and, and coming in today. No, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited. And yeah, I know it's it's been a journey, but I'm very, very excited to be here. And yeah, just, yeah, buzzing. Really looking forward to it. Oh, amazing. It's a really important topic that is starting to get a little bit more attention, but probably isn't still quite spoke about enough. I know most people that I know say to me, what is endometriosis? They've, they've never heard of it. So I think a pretty good place to start would probably be to give the listeners a little bit of context on yourself and your background and the diagnosis, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. So hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Rebecca Lloyd. I am the founder of a company called This Independent Life. Um, and I started the business about 18 months ago. Well, I don't know when this is going live, <laughs> but I started it in, in early 2022 after my own personal experience with various experiences, but with a lot of health challenges. So at the time I was working, running the London office of an independent creative agency. So actually working in the healthcare space, had done that for most of my career, worked in biomedical science, scientific research, uh, the NHS for a bit, clinical research for a bit, all different kind of areas, but never really knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and ended up working for this startup that was amazing. But then uh, sort of during COVID, there was about two years where I had just been living in chronic pain every single day. And on reflection, I'd actually been having symptoms for around 10 years, but I'd sort of been to the doctors, been kind of fobbed off, told that it's just like normal to have painful periods. Um, so to be honest, didn't really think anything of it. I figured, you know, they're the experts. Why would I question them? My mum's also a nurse and she kind of never really said anything. Even though I was studying biomedical science, they'd never even mentioned what endometriosis was. So all of these things, I just kind of got on with it. But then during COVID, um, it got to the point where, yeah, it was every day. And like, it, I just, to be completely honest, was in such a bad place mentally that I couldn't even see my life continuing. And my partner was actually the one in the end that was like, okay, this is enough now. Like, this isn't actually normal. Like, we need to do something about this. But I had totally normalized being in pain all the time. And on reflection, that sounds absolutely crazy, right? Like, of course, it's not normal to be in pain all the time. But I think actually, as women, we're not really taught about our bodies. We're not really told what's normal. And to be honest, I don't even like using the word normal because obviously everyone's different. But what, you know what you should be feeling and what is kind of regular in terms of your your body and your cycle and all that kind of stuff so the fact that I yeah had just kind of got used to it and then everything that comes with that you put a mask on you, are, you know I've always been very ambitious and didn't want it to impact my career so having to sort of like pretend everything's fine when you're sitting there in pain all the time that obviously takes its toll over over time um, and I ended up just having a complete breakdown, basically, and realised that, OK, I need to probably go back to the doctors and figure out what this is. But of course, again, having done that before and being sort of bobbed off, it can become really hard to actually then have the confidence to go back. You know, my confidence had been completely knocked when you're being told all the time that, you know, it's all in your head or there's nothing wrong with you. Then again, that's obviously going to get to you. So long story short, I um, was really fortunate to have health insurance through my employer at the time, even though I was in this period where I was actually really questioning my career, whether I even wanted to be doing what I was doing. And that was sort of a whole other thing, um, but was able to get a diagnosis through having laparoscopy, uh, lapros laparoscopic surgery um, and yeah, that was when I got the diagnosis of endometriosis. So endometriosis, for those of you who don't know, is a condition where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus, endometri endometrium, grows outside of the uterus. Um, and I say that with a caveat because there's actually no real understanding of what endometriosis is, which is, again, pretty shocking given that it affects one in 10 women 
and people assigned female at birth. Um, so that's the working, <laughs> that's the working definition. It's still kind of open to interpretation because actually now there's more and more research coming out that shows that it's actually more of a whole body condition. So we think of it very much as a gynecological condition, but actually we're seeing more and more that, you know, there's sort of inflammation is, is a big part of it, looking at blood sugar and all these other different factors. And again, this is with a caveat that it's all sort of open to more research. We need a lot more funding, a lot more research to actually be sure about it. Um, but actually getting these lesions, it's not just in our pelvic cavity. It's not just on your ovary. It's not just on your uterus. It's been found on people's lungs. Quite often it's on people's bowels and it kind of sticks together. So it's almost like this sticky tissue. You have these lesions and they actually can sort of stick everything basically inside you together. So when it's really bad, you can get, you know, and you have different grades. So typically it's from grade one to grade four. If it gets really bad, you can have what's called frozen pelvis, where your your pelvis is basically so stuck together that it can't even move anymore. So typically when everything's healthy and working fine, everything, all of your organs kind of slide alongside each other, right? When you have endometriosis, you almost have these like sticky patches that sort of stop that from happening. And so you don't just get kind of organs sticking to the, like sticking together. That can in itself then cause further inflammation and further damage. Um, and I say that because I think it's really important to to know that, for example, myself, I had been diagnosed with an endometrioma, which is a, a they call it chocolate cyst, which I think is like the most ridiculous and like horrible way of calling it because I'm like chocolate is obviously amazing why are you calling something yeah. so horrible a chocolate says but anyway it's because they're really dark blood basically sorry for anyone who's squeamish um and that had I got that removed and then I had some on like my bladder and other parts of my ovary as well which they lasered off and again I mean depending on how long you have we could have a whole other podcast talking about different you know treatment options and things but it's the gold standard really is excision surgery so they go in you have a laparoscopy that's also the only way that you can get it diagnosed formally as of today. That is changing. There is a lot of you know amazing research going on, a lot of really incredible innovations that are working on urine tests, blood tests, um, all, all different kind of things. Also non-invasive, so looking at different types of surgical scans that you can do. Because at the moment, you can't get a diagnosis officially until you have surgery, which a lot of people think, really. And I was frankly shocked, again, for something that's so common. Um but yeah, as of today, that that's kind of the reality. But it's also the fact that you will have surgery and it's very likely it will come back. So that's exactly what happened to me. It's happened to a lot of other women. Not for everyone. I don't. I want to sort of say as well, like some people, they'll have treatment and they'll be absolutely great. A lot of people actually have endometriosis and have no symptoms at all. So again, it's a very heterogeneous condition. It affects everyone very differently. Um, and I think that's also good to keep in mind when you're having conversations about it, but also when we're thinking about it sort of as a as a condition and how we can go about treating it, because what works for one person isn't going to work for everybody. And that's why we really need to take this kind of trial and error approach. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm doing now really is I'm I'm now on this trial and error journey because I tried surgery. My symptoms came back a few months later. And that's really what then inspired me to sort of not pivot but start focusing more on the endometriosis and women's health side of things in my business because actually I saw a really big unmet need there and I think there's a there has a hell of a lot more that can be done um so yeah yeah there's loads of loads to unpack there but I mean one one thing that really stands out is as you said is that it can come back even after the incision surgery but I actually know a couple of women as well that were misdiagnosed they've had the surgery the person doing it has said you know yeah no endometriosis here and they've had it redone by someone else that's then found some found some so 
mean, even that is a little bit sad and worrying, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we have a long way to go in terms of widespread education, both from a public, like consumer, like patient perspective, but also from a physician perspective. Um, I think it's really important that we are able to kind of have conversations openly and are able to challenge our physicians. I think there's a lot of kind of generational you know, institutional kind of systemic ways of, of how we think of healthcare, right? How we think of our healthcare system in the UK, we're, we're very fortunate to have the NHS. But as someone who's worked in the NHS and has family in the NHS, I say this with love, but it's totally broken. It's not, it's not got the resources it needs to succeed and to support the, you know, the society that it was created for in the first place, which is such a shame. But it does mean that actually we have this lack of expertise and we have this lack of, you know, ability to have people that really are able to, you know, t- treat it properly. And and I'm again, I'm, I'm sort of saying that sensitively because there are a lot of people that are really trying. There's a lot of people that are very well-intentioned and, you know, are doing what they can with what they have. Um, and I, I want to kind of recognise that. But there are also a lot of people, unfortunately, and I've heard this, you know, I've experienced this myself with with physicians, but I've also had a lot of people in my community now share this in the support group and in the wider events that, that I've run, kind of share that actually, you know, that they just have people, like you said, that, that don't really know what they're doing. And, and that's kind of, it's kind of, it is, it is what it is, you know, like, and that's because of a lack of training and that's because actually back in our you know medical schools we really need to relook at that we need to actually be elevating and actually kind of igniting the interest even in this condition like we need to have people who i mean it takes years decades to become an expert in excision surgery there's so much that we don't know about the condition and what we do know even that is you know pretty confusing so i think in order to actually have people that are not getting misdiagnosed and are actually able to do these very complex surgeries and manage these patients that have a lot of contraindications. We think about, you know, you have endometriosis, but quite often you have a lot of other things. For example, I have permanent bloating. People call it endobelly. Yes, it might be endobelly. Yes, it might be something else, but no one can really tell you either way, right? Because no one really knows we don't have the research, but you need to have people that really understand that nuance and understand that interaction. Um, and it can be really disheartening, I think, for people who have, you know, got the courage to go to a physician, talk about their experience, which, again, can be very traumatic for a lot of people when you've had to kind of live with this, live with the pain and the impact on your quality of life, like missing school, impacting your career, impacting your personal relationships. Like the stories are literally heartbreaking and devastating. By the time you kind of get, you know, you've kind of got all of that and you've gone and you're you're sort of like, okay, well, I've got the surgery and now I'm doing and you're told, oh, actually, no, you know, it's actually very that in itself can be very heartbreaking because there's there's a real sense of relief. And that's why I always try and encourage people, even though at the moment surgery is the only option. Yes, surgery is a big decision. I don't say that lightly and I thought about it for a long time, but actually just having that kind of confirmation of what is happening to your body it kind of opens doors to then opportunities for support and to actually get the help that you need so I really empathize um with people who who haven't been given a diagnosis or then they're misdiagnosed because actually just to get one surgery at the moment it takes years on the waiting list and I have people in my community that have flown to Romania and spent thousands of pounds out of pocket because they've just given up with waiting or they've you know they're just being told that they need to have a baby because they need to do that first before they consider their their pain and their quality of life. And yeah, it's it's 
surprisingly common. So I think we need to do better because people who are having surgeries and then having a misdiagnosis, you kind of feel like, well, what what next? Because actually, what, you're just going to keep having more surgeries? No, and that's why we need better resources and better options for both diagnosis and then also for treatment so that you don't have women who are you know experiencing that and feeling like you kind of get your hopes up and then actually oh no everything's fine so then you're kind of back to square one oh it's all in my head and you sort of really don't know where to go from there so yeah we definitely have a lot of work to do in that as well yeah hey it's leo here just very quickly interrupting this podcast episode to share with you a really exciting announcement the nexus team are now available to take on new one-on-one online nutrition clients So if you're interested in working with myself or anyone on the team for your nutrition, health or body composition based goals, then follow the link in the show notes and you can see all of the information on what that might look like to work with us. I mean, there's loads there that I want to unpack, but I think the first really great place to start would be to talk a little bit more, as you said a minute ago, around like, how do you have this conversation with your physician? Because what jumps out as me is kind of crazy. And I remember, I remember exactly when you said it at your event, I remember being like, what? And it was when you said that my mum was a nurse and you did your degree in biomedical sciences and you hadn't heard of endometriosis. And that was kind of the moment where I really realised that this system is definitely a little bit broken in the context of, you know, female health in particular, endo, because I was like, why is me as a male personal trainer sitting here feeling like I know a semi-okay amount about this issue and have helped actually several female clients that had never heard of it but had all the symptoms actually help support them get a diagnosis when there's women literally working in the medical industry degree in biomedical sciences working as a nurse that have never heard of this condition that for me was really quite mind-blowing um so I know you've kind of touched on it already but I mean like why is that and and what can the patient do to try and help kind of advocate and have that conversation with their physician So to answer the first part, why is that? Um, To be honest, I think it goes back to like the deep rooted sexism that we actually have had in our society for many, many years. Women weren't even able to have mortgages until the 70s. Women weren't included in clinical trials until the 90s. So a lot of medications that are out there haven't even been tested on our bodies. We weren't even able to vote until, you know, the last century. So I do actually think that we just have had women and then women's health as a sort of extension of that just hasn't been a priority and I really believe that we are seeing the ripple effects of that now and actually you know it's a generational thing in that women were always told oh it's just normal to be in pain just get on with it it's just like women's issues and so we we actually were taught not to talk about it for years and for most of our life in society So I think that that, you know, there's a real hangover from that. And we're still seeing that today. And I think we've come a long way. We've definitely made a lot of progress. But actually, there is a huge stigma still around women and actually a huge stigma around women's health. I actually recently did a survey on this because I was looking for data to support this. Surprise, surprise. There's not very much. There's a lot on kind of women in the workplace and sort of, um, you know, women in leadership and things like that. And there's there's stuff now more so on like the menopause and fertility and we are seeing more you know we had the women's health strategy that came out in the UK which is you know an amazing step in the right direction but and again I'm trying not to be cynical here because I think you know all steps are good steps but actually when you break it down and you look at the details it's not a sustainable plan and it's like okay we need to get away from these headlines and you know saying oh well we're just going to do this and it's going to make up for you know the decades of you know, the way that we've been going about women's health and treating it in this country and actually being able to talk about it and just have a conversation. And this comes down to like, you know, 
family units as well and you know the friends that you have the colleagues like there's so many kind of ad hoc things that you can't even control that would it take that you know if you're in a family and people are really open and are able to talk about that all the time you're probably going to find it a lot easier to have a conversation with a physician because you're not you know fearful and you have the language to use whereas actually if you've grown up or you know in school most people I certainly didn't really have any (laughs) health education it was basically like a penis goes in a vagina to have a baby and you bleed once a month and that was literally it and it's like that's just not good enough like how can we expect people to talk about the things that are going on in our bodies if we don't have the language And I think that's really important. I mean, there's so many facets that go to it, but having the language to use to know how to articulate what's happening has to be step one. We have to equip and educate people. And that's that's a national institutional thing. We need to put that into, you know, school curriculums, university curriculums. We can't just be doing one off half an hour sessions when people are 10 years old and expect that that's going to be enough. You know, like we need to be educating people earlier on. I would like to think if I'd have heard about these symptoms earlier on in my you know, life that I would have actually probably put two and two together and probably been a li- little bit more, you know, actually, I think there's something going on. Can you refer mm-hmm. me? But I just thought, oh, yeah, he's telling me here's stronger painkillers. It's normal. Off you go. Actually, no. And I think there's a real um, there's a real sort of I guess I don't know what the word is but we've we've grown up thinking that people in positions of power are right and I think that is something that doesn't change overnight and so I think from a yeah from a why can't we talk about it I think yeah that there's just so many different reasons because we just haven't been we haven't had the platform or the ability or the language or the tools or the spaces to actually talk about it in a way where we're not going to be judged we're not going to be laughed at we're not going to be told that it's all in your head and all of these things so I think that's sort of the first part of it what was the second part of the question how can people kind of advocate a little bit better for themselves when having these conversations with physicians, especially if it's a, I mean, one like bit of context on this, one story that really stood out for me with one of your panellists. I don't actually remember the exact context, but, you know, she, she was there and she said she kind of went to the doctor with her husband and she asked one of the questions that she'd forgotten to ask. The husband was like, you know, remember you wanted to ask this. And uh, the doctor turned around and answered the question to the husband in the context of, are oh, you worried about your wife's libido or something, which is fucking wild it is fucking wild um yes so in terms of having conversations so this is something that I teach when I work you know when I speak to workplaces universities um you know whoever really but I think we need to I mean first and foremost it's about finding our voice again it kind of goes back to what I was saying before around like our confidence and actually realizing and kind of taking a moment to just actually know that like there's nothing wrong with you you haven't done anything wrong there's a lot of shame that can come when you're struggling with endo or any other condition for that matter and so I think just first and foremost knowing that actually you know yes it's been really difficult yes you've been turned away yes people might be saying to you that you're being dramatic but actually no you know your body better than anyone and I think there's there's kind of two ways about it the first thing is a framework that I use for everything really the first is awareness um so kind of self-reflecting on just what's happening in your body. And that might sound a bit cheesy, but I think, you know, we're very busy. We're kind of getting about our life. We don't really ever stop to just like 
be and just actually think, okay, what am I actually feeling? And we're so used to just popping a pill here. And, you know, I became so used to just literally popping packs of painkillers every day that I, I didn't even question that I was popping probably way over the amount that I should have been. But again, you just, you don't even think about it. You're just doing. So I think actually finding time to just pause and reflect and just think about like, what am I feeling? I mean, if you want to go further, you can like go on YouTube and you can do body scans even. It's like a form of meditation where you literally go through your body and that's one way of like actually being very mindful. But it doesn't have to be that. It can just be like, okay, actually what's going on? And just starting to like be aware of what those things are and just taking note of them. Because again, like looking back, I think if I'd have done that, I would have seen that there was a pattern that I was in pain every single day instead of it all kind of blurring into one and not really knowing what's happening. So I think having awareness about what's actually happening first and foremost, educating ourselves. So I think equipping ourselves with knowledge, knowledge is power, um, educating ourselves on our bodies, making up for the gap that has happened over our lives where we've not been able to actually understand what's going on, understand that actually it's not normal to be in pain. We have this, you know, rhetoric that women are just meant to be in pain, whether it's childbirth, whether it's periods. And so we just sort of get on with it it is not normal to be in pain. Like, of course, it's not normal to be in pain. Pain is a signal that something is wrong. So, and again, I won't go into, there's a lot around kind of like the psychological and the nerves and, you know, there's, there's a lot that can be done in that side in terms of like hypnotherapy, but actually just educating yourself on the basics um, just so that, again, you feel more confident and you feel equipped to actually have that conversation. So before you're even going into a doctor's office, you have a little bit more of an understanding just so that you're like a little bit more on a level. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to be going in there and thinking like, oh yeah, I'm just going to do whatever they tell me. No, you should be able to have a productive conversation with someone on a level where you're able to actually communicate as peers to a certain extent as adults, right? Like obviously they have a lot, you know, they have experience, they've trained for years and I'm not taking that away at all but you shouldn't feel like you're just going in there and it's kind of like here's my body do whatever you want right like you should be able to actually know more than that um and then finally it's just taking action and sort of having the motivation to do that and starting small and that that will kind of build up over time and I think that can be what I was saying before like starting to just kind of take note of what you're doing it can be calling to make a doctor's appointment it can be actually just opening up to somebody I know a lot of people that have never even spoken to like their partners about this they just kind of have literally grilled and bared it they've not said anything to their family to their friends because you just don't want to be a burden you don't want to kind of be a nuisance so you just get on with it but once you're able to start taking action in some form and having having those conversations in an environment where you're with people that support you and love you Again, that's kind of like laying the foundation. These three things are sort of laying the foundation for them when you actually go in. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to do this. Some people, I think, don't have that. But for a lot of people, I think we can feel very, like we just don't really know, we don't really have the sort of strength really to go and do it. So I think doing that as a first step and sort of having that support and knowing that actually you're not going through this alone, whether that's reaching out to a support group, whether that's, you know, with your partner or with a friend or family member or a colleague even, like anyone really, I think that in itself just gives you sort of, okay, like I've got this, you know, I can do it. So once you've done those things and you're going to the doctor, there's three things that I would say to anyone who's kind of about to navigate the system and kind of navigate referrals and diagnosis. The first is being prepared. 
So now there's a lot of amazing apps. Um, I just use my notes in my phone, honestly, <laughs> because I don't know, maybe I'm basic, but uh, just tracking what's actually happening. So again, I think we can sort of be getting about our lives. We don't really stop to kind of think, but that's really actually an evidence bank that we can use for those conversations. So again, it might be that you're fine. You might get someone who's amazing and who listens, both a GP and a secondary care specialist. But if you don't, you have that then as like, actually, no, here is what I've experienced. It's in black and white. And actually, you know, here's the fact. So kind of what are we going to do about it? But again, in a productive, positive, solution oriented way, not in a why won't you help me all of this? Because and again, whatever works for you. But I always think healthcare professionals are human beings at the end of the day. And if you can help them help you and you can be kind Kindness costs nothing. You know, you see those posters like in the hospitals and I'm always shocked where it's like, be kind to our staff. We don't tolerate violence and aggression. And I'm just like, no, like, yes, it can be like devastating. You're going through this and it's high stress, but there is no reason to ever, you know, treat another human being like that, whether they're being assholes or not. Do you know what I mean? So I just think, again, kind of like having that preparation, having that evidence and going in so that you're able to have a productive conversation and listing any questions that you have as well. It might sound really basic, but when you're in there, again, from experience, like emotions are running high, you've got adrenaline, like you're being told a lot of different things and you forget what you actually wanted to do. So I think taking some time before you have your GP appointment or your specialist appointment, whether it's with a nurse or a surgeon or whoever, so that you get all of the answers to the questions that you want. And you can leave that appointment feeling really good about your action plan and next steps. So I think that would be the first step, just making sure you're prepared, knowing what your goals are. If you have them, you may not, and that's okay. But actually just making sure that you are ready to go into that. And that can be taking someone with you as well. I always go to my appointments alone because I prefer it. Again, it's totally individual. Uh, But if you can, a lot of people like to take somebody with them uh, just, you know, for support. But again, whatever works for you. Um, the second one is around playing the game. So that might sound a bit weird, but having worked in the NHS and again, knowing many people, and this really goes for any country, to be honest, but I think you need to know that like you're going up against a system and saying going up against it sounds really over the top, but you're kind of doing something that is part of a way bigger kind of setup. And so actually knowing that For example, every trust in the UK actually operates almost as like a separate business, if you think of it like that, like they're not connected. So things like now you can request copies of your medical records. That's quite a new thing. Um, And that came in, I think, in the last year. Before that, you couldn't have access to your own medical records. Um, And again, that's like a whole other conversation. There's obviously pros and cons to that. But actually now it means that you're able to get a copy. I would highly recommend people doing that because what can happen, and this happened to me just as an example, I had my surgery in Guy's Hospital in London. I then went back after I left my job, didn't have private health insurance, and so went back into like the regular NHS um, hospital. Same hospital, Guy's Hospital, first appointment, obviously just assumed it's the same hospital. So I was like, I'll follow my own advice. Obviously they're going to have it because it's the same hospital, so I won't need to worry. They didn't have a copy of any of my notes, didn't have any of my history, nothing from the surgery. And I was like, are you serious? I could have brought it with me if I'd have known. But actually, yeah, even in the same trust. So I say that to say, you never know, right? Like always be prepared because you just don't know. And after you've waited a year for this appointment, like I was raging as you can imagine because it's like really like 
really. Like, it's just crazy to me. So you can have a copy of your medical records, which just means that you can, you don't have to worry about any of that, you know, like you can sort of hand that over. You can do the same for your GP now as well, I think. I think you can see it in the NHS app. So you can just get access to all of that and just have that on hand so that you can show. Um, but also knowing that, you know, there's often cancellations and because the NHS doesn't have enough resources and admin support, quite often those appointments won't get replaced. So they'll quite often be just like spots in clinics where actually they've just not had the chance to kind of fill them. So if you call up, sometimes I say, you know, if you call once a week or just just check in every now and again, if you get someone on a good day <laughs> and you're nice and you ask nicely, quite often they will be able to actually help you. Again, this won't be the case for everyone, but it's just something to know because if you're on a waiting list for a year and actually if you can half that to six months, you know, every little helps when you're like living in pain every day. You want to sort of get get to that help as quickly as you can. Um, so just being aware that that's something that you can do, I think is really helpful as well. Um, and then just not getting caught up in bureaucracy because actually, again, it's a system and there are a lot of people, as in every part of life, right, that maybe, you know, they're just going through the motions, they have a lot of stuff on their plate as well, whatever. But actually, if you're not getting somewhere with a GP or with a specialist or whoever, get a new one and actually don't waste your precious energy that you are already, you know, it's hard enough just to get to the doctors when you're in pain all the time. So actually, you don't need to feel bad about actually wanting to get help and I think we again we sort of say oh well they're the experts they know best so I'm not going to do anything but no like there's no reason why you should be having to bang on doors and beg for support and beg for help like why that's absolutely insane so I did that again got a new GP wasn't getting anywhere got a new GP and for the first time have someone that actually listened to me and has actually done what I've asked of them for the first time Amazing. in like years so it, it doesn't have to be these big things it can just be little people say oh well you know email the practice manager and email you know the hair you can do all those things that's fine it's probably going to sit in an inbox for you know years <laughs> so like yes do it and yes there'll be exceptions but just be mindful about where you place your energy because we don't have the luxury of being able to just spend months and years waiting and waiting and waiting waiting lists are getting longer like they sh yeah it's just it, it's awful so I think whatever we can do to actually kind of speed things up um is really helpful there was one other thing but now I've completely forgotten it but hopefully that was a lot if I think of it I'll say it again <laughs> it comes back let there me know there was a third one but now I'm like going blank if so when like you you're like fed up with this and need a new GP is there any specific requirements that you could look out for or like a specific place that you could look to find a GP that maybe had a bit more of an understanding about this? Or is it just potluck where you went and found the next GP and they just happen to be better? It's potluck unless you can go private. Um, and as with all of this, I mean, I'm really passionate about the accessibility of healthcare. And actually, I think we have a real issue in that because it's such dire straits uh, in the NHS, a lot of people have to go private. This is something that I'm experiencing now. I was told the other week literally actually I had my specialist appointment that I've reached the end of the road with options and that that's kind of like it and I'm like okay great thanks like and so it's just like no that that's just crazy but if you if you I've lost my train of thought now what was the question um was it potluck that your next GP was better no it's not it's not potluck um because there are actually now women's health clinics 
So there was one that worked with me at the conference called Tumi Clinic is one. Um, there's a few others. And I mean, you can go to like private private places. There's a plan to create women's health hubs as part of the women's health strategy. Again, if you look at the numbers, not quite sure how it's actually going to work. But in theory, they are putting a plan together to create women's health hubs, which would basically be like a women's health GP, which would be amazing, to be honest, because actually it is different. You can't just have a 10 minute appointment when you're talking about things from people who have had, you know, living with something for a decade plus. It's not something that you can really do in 10 minutes. So, um, but yeah, in terms of actually getting a GP, as of now, there's not really any way of doing it. You can, I believe, if you go on the NHS website and you're looking for uh, a new surgery, like a new GP, you can see the doctors and sometimes it will say like, so-and-so has special interests in X, Y, Z. And so then you could see if someone has, you know, women's health on there, obviously they're going to be more interested in it. But to be honest, it's kind of luck of the draw. And actually with your GP, it has to be in your, that's it's postcode related. So then that goes into the whole, and again, that could be a whole other podcast, postcode lotteries when it comes to healthcare. If you're in, you know, when I had a, I had a, a pelvic ultrasound recently to check for my, which showed that my endometrioma had actually come back there was a woman there who was witnessing, kind of watching what the the woman was doing, the doctor was doing. And I was like, oh, like, because they were like, oh, you know, are you happy? And I was like, yeah, of course. And she was like, oh, we've actually come down. I think it was from Norfolk. And she was like, we have absolutely no training there. We have to come to London just to get basic training on scanning, which, by the way, is like one of the only ways you can really diagnose without surgery. Um, So she was like, yeah, patients there. We have absolutely no support. We have, and, and so like, Again, if you're in London, Oxford as well has an amazing, I mean, they offer like psychosexual therapy, I think acupuncture, like amazing, amazing suite of things. But they're also a research centre. They have a lot of funding, you know, all of these different things. So actually, again, it really depends where you are. There's no guarantee, but that's where I always say, you know, try where you can. And if you're not getting anywhere, try somewhere else, even if it's a little bit further. Usually there's a good amount of GPs kind of in your area but really it's just about getting into the system so your GP is kind of like the gateway right to getting into secondary care which is the hospital so if you can just you don't even need to have a full conversation with them and I I ended up doing this previously to this when I was going private I just said look I'm having these symptoms I know there's something wrong can you refer me to a gynecologist and that was it and they referred me that is not always the case, but it almost doesn't matter what your GP says sometimes. Yes, they can be incredibly supportive. They can give you a lot of things and it's really good for kind of ongoing care. But actually, they're not going to give you a diagnosis. So they're sort of like helping you get to the next stage in that system and get to the next stage in you know the waiting list and in that sort of churn and cycle that you're going to be going through. So really, it's just about getting to the next stage. All of this is about getting to the next stage, getting to see a gynecologist, then getting referred to a specialist, then getting put on the waiting list for surgery, then maybe trying, you know, I'm on the waiting list for pain management and for pelvic floor physios. But you, I've been on the waiting list for, I still haven't got an appointment through and I've been on it for six months so like it takes time you just have to get on the lists (laughs) just get on the lists work the lists and then hopefully it comes through and then if it doesn't you can go you can like explore private options but obviously that's not accessible to many people it costs a hell of a lot of money when you're trying to I mean the the costs really add up it's crazy yeah I bet I mean for anyone listening that would like to consider private because maybe they're fed up with waiting like what does that process kind of look like is there any specific place person or company that you'd recommend so quite often now more so a lot of employers 
offer health insurance and I think that is one of the things that is so underutilized I meet a lot of people and I say to them like first and foremost have you seen if your employer has health insurance and a lot of times people won't have checked or they don't know because they've not actually been told you know if this is from the employer's side they could probably do a better job <laughs> at actually saying the benefits that they have right um, and I heard this actually in the research that I did recently that actually companies will offer things like this but they won't really kind of market them and I'm not really sure why that is to be honest but um, if you can do that, like Bo I went through Booper, they were actually great. Once I got in there, like it was actually amazing. Like I have no, no qualms to say about it. There's others, one called Vitality. I know of people who have had their surgery through that. Um, in terms of doing it individually, I haven't done it personally because honestly, like I started a business and then I was sort of like leaving and I just didn't really have the money to at the time. And now I've just been going through the NHS and only now I'm at the stage where I'm sort of now I've run out of NHS options and I'm looking at other alternatives. So I'm not sure how to do it individually, but I would definitely say to anyone to use your health insurance. I think I think I had like a 200 quid excess, but it meant that I was able to get surgery within two months, follow up scans, pre-scans. Like it was, it was really good. And I do just want to note though that if you are doing that there are a lot of uh there are a lot of insurers that actually don't cover women's health so again that's probably a whole other conversation but you have to be mindful when you're going through health insurance because something like endometriosis is a chronic condition and sometimes they don't cover chronic condition it can be you have a back problem you have a knee problem whatever but if it's a chronic condition sometimes they won't cover it so the ways that I've heard that you can get around that is getting um sort of like letters or basically saying from your surgeon that you see that this is the only treatment option so in some ways like it's helpful because there's so few options that the only option really is to have surgery through the traditional kind of health routes because it's really hard to get acupuncture or or kind of physio and those other things but if you're able to get the surgery and actually have like a sort of recommendation from your surgeon that you can give to your insurer I've heard from most people in my community that have done that they've been able to they've been able to get that and you don't always need it I didn't need it um but often yeah and, and I don't know why that goes back to probably seeing that you know women's health probably isn't prioritized and the unique nuances that happen with women's health aren't considered in the same way so it's not going to be, you know, all sunshine and roses, but it's a really good option if you do have it available through your employer, for sure. Yeah, that's great to know. I think that, I mean, what are some of those other treatment options? So obviously, as you said, that most people, if, if necessary, we kind of need that incision surgery. But maybe in terms of more of the pain management, as opposed to kind of treatment, like what, is there anything that you found effective? Yeah, so um, there's a few things, actually. And again, this was something that I was shocked that I wasn't made aware of these things um really at any point even when I went private uh that there are actually a lot of options and going back to what I was saying at the beginning around you know endometriosis and other conditions being a whole body situation there is a lot that can be done and actually I'm really now really passionate about and always have been really but actually like taking a preventative approach and preventative medicine and actually our bodies are incredible like I've always been fascinated with the body since <laughs> obviously that's why I went to, <laughs> to study biomedical science and actually like had a cadaver and like cut up a body and like all this stuff which I know makes me sound like a psycho but I've always been fascinated at how the body is just this like 
amazing thing that just kind of works and there's like so many things happening and like it's so symbiotic and it's just like incredible and actually it's made to like be operating at its optimum if you know what I mean that's terrible English but like there's a reason why I think a lot of us have disease in this day and age and again I'm not an expert by any means but I don't think it's a coincidence that stress is my biggest pain trigger and so for me and and for a lot of people some really effective things and and what I'm looking at now particularly is taking more of a functional approach which is like a root cause approach so actually trying to look at okay what is the environment that is allowing my endometriosis to grow like endometriosis shouldn't be there like it shouldn't be there period so how can I instead of just chopping it away there's a reason why people don't know but this is what kind of more research is showing that's why it comes back after you have surgery because the environment's not changing. You're removing it, but actually if the environment's the same, then it's going to kind of regrow. Yeah, so, and that logic, like that makes sense to me logically. And so just thinking about it from like a pragmatic perspective, it's like, okay, well, then I need to look at the environment. And what is that? That's about looking at my nutrition. It's about looking at my like homeostasis and my like just general state of being, uh, stress management and sort of, You know, I've been literally yesterday, actually, I self-referred myself to talking therapies, which I would highly recommend a lot of people do because I think the the mental health and psychological toll that living with a condition like endometriosis can take is not spoken about enough. I did an event specifically on this subject for for the exact reason on managing mental health with endo because it can be so exhausting to have to just constantly like every day you're just like wondering when it's going to end and I'll be totally like I'm an open book I'll be totally real because I think it's really important that people share and understand the impact that it can have like there are days where like yesterday I spent half the morning on the floor like of my bathroom just having like a horrific flare-up no idea really what caused it it just came out of nowhere and then I had two events that I was presenting at that day Like that is really, really hard when you're having to just like go through these cycles of ups and downs. And so I think first and foremost, working on our mental health, not in like a cheesy way, like we all need to look after our mental health way, but actually taking it really seriously and finding what works for us. Um, I started running last year. I'm not a runner, (laughs) like by any stretch. My brother and sister have like run marathons and like definitely got the genes. I did not. Um, But I just started running in the mornings, a few times a week. And actually now I do that more for my mental like sanity and, you know, just being outside and like being in the sun or being in like nature or, you know, whatever. But that for me is something that I'm like, okay, I'm getting up, I'm doing this and it's like setting the tone for the day. And even when I really don't feel like it and I'm really struggling, I will really try and do that because I know that if I don't support my mental health, that my physical health takes a massive downturn. So I think working on your mental health, whether it's getting referred for talking therapies or or something else, whether it's working with someone privately, if you can, if you have health insurance, um, I'm actually speaking to someone this week who was recommended to me who's like an energy healer, which I would never have usually, I'm, you know, not really one who would kind of go for that normally as more of a scientist. But honestly, like I will try anything. And I think when you, you meet people with endo, like they'll try anything or with any condition, really any chronic condition. So, yeah, working on your kind of mental health and supporting that. 
looking at nutrition and lifestyle, that's something that I've been trying to do. I've tried the low FODMAP diet. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was hideous. And as a foodie, it was like devastating because I couldn't eat like so many things. It was it was really tough. Again, that worked for a lot of people. It didn't work for me. So now I'm sort of moving on to the next thing. But actually looking at, you know, diet and intake, for example, flax seeds has um, phytoestrogens. And that's something that I was recommended by a friend who's a who's a nutritionist. And I'm lucky now that I'm doing this and since doing the conference and and doing events that I have a lot of people in my network that I can just call on and ask for advice, which is amazing. But um, flax seeds, for example, have phytoestrogens, so they fight for the receptor of estrogens, of estrogen in the body. And so actually, even though you would think it would make it grow more, it actually kind of competes and then reduces. And I don't know if it's actually, and again, it's so hard to tell, right? But I went, I'd, I'd started doing this, having flax seeds every morning. And then I think two months later, I went for a scan and my cyst had reduced in size. And they were like, oh, it's probably just you know, the coil, I was like, but I've had the coil for seven years. And like, I had the coil when I grew, when it all kind of grew in the first place. You're telling me that the one thing that I've changed hasn't got any impact. And like, so I think it's little things like, for me, that's that's exploring different things with my diet. Um, I'm not saying flax seeds is going to like cure endo, but it's just kind of, again, educating yourself, looking at nutrition. I think nutrition has a big impact in terms of like our gut, our gut health as well. It's so, so important. Um, there's more research coming out that's looking at the in, the intersection between the gut, the microbiome and endo and actually all of that, which is like fascinating. And I think, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, but actually just looking at what we're eating and consuming, especially in the modern world. I mean, we can eat a lot of crap. <laughs> so I think just knowing that actually we are what we eat. I really believe that. Um, and I'm, you know, I love a glass of wine. I love my food, but I also love, you know, not being in pain all the time and I really want to be well and so again it's just about finding what works for you but looking at nutrition uh, pelvic floor therapy is another one I've not tried it because as I said before I'm still on the waiting list so I'll let you know once I've tried that uh, but that's meant to be um, I've heard that be really effective for a lot of people because a lot of people with endo or other conditions we're very tense so we're always told to and I don't know if you have this actually in your experience it's like you, you tense your pelvic floors and everything's meant to be like tense your core and all of this but actually because we're in pain a lot of the time we're very used to kind of tensing everything as a way of managing that so actually we need to learn the opposite we need to learn how to relax it um and so that's where it goes back to like everything kind of moving around if something's stuck together like if you have like a you know a tight like a knot it's like having a knot in your shoulder you can have a knot in your pelvic floor and that can actually so again not an expert on it but really fascinating research and that can help a lot of people um things like hypnotherapy something that i've just started looking at again i've not tried it personally but there there's a lot of research into looking into like pain pathways and actually how we perceive pain so even if you've had surgery to remove the the lesions uh, people still feel pain in theory there should be no reason why you should be feeling pain right because what's causing it is gone but we still do um so again like look looking at that and kind of how that can support um i think those are the main ones but i mean really there's there's so many like, acupuncture actually is another one i'm doing an event in a couple of weeks on that so yeah, there's, there's a lot of different alternative therapies and quotes. I call them alternative therapies because, I mean, whatever works really. But I think the biggest ones are our mental health and diet, nutrition, lifestyle. Because I think those are, those are the two things that if you, can, if you can manage those and get those under control, you're kind of creating an environment where your body isn't in this state of just like angst all the time. 
and you know cortisol flying around and you know all the pathways that that kind of knocks off and disrupts in our bodies so it's just sort of getting back to like a calm well state that we are meant to be in as human beings and trying to sort of block out the <laughs> block out life sometimes a little bit and actually just come back to like okay I'm here like what do I need for my body and just trying different things and it, not everything's going to work first time but I truly believe I have to believe that like something will work one day and it will yeah I love that I think that that belief component is really important isn't it as you said like mental well-being is affected by chronic conditions so you just you do have to stay positive and keep believing that it will get better yeah I mean you have to like like I said there's days where that's not possible and I'll be there and I'm really fortunate to have an incredibly supportive partner who is there through the ups and the downs um and I'd be lying if I said that I'm, you know, cheery every day and saying, yeah, it's going to be great every day because sometimes it does get to the point where it's like, well, is this ever going to end? Like, is this ever going to get better? But then I just have to remind myself that it is like it, you just you have to have unwavering belief and hope. And that's one of the reasons why I host events and do what I do, frankly, because I think there's not enough hope and there's not enough access to support for people who are struggling with these kind of things and I think the more we're able to make those things accessible and and give those opportunities to the people who need them like that in itself I truly believe helps you in what you're doing if you're in a state where you just feel like you're in a dark pit of despair and there's no hope of course you're going to give up so I think it's so important to remind ourselves and also try and do things that bring us joy which can be so hard when you're you know in pain and you have to cancel your plans all the time or you know you're not able to do what you're wanting to do in your life but it's just like trying to find the little things and again whether it's joining a support group once I met someone else who was going through the same experience as me it was genuinely life-changing and I definitely wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that so I think there's a lot to be said and and it's imperative really I think that we're able to find spaces for support and conversation because not everyone in our life is going to get it and that's okay because actually you know it is a very <laughs> nuanced experience and it can be really hard to relate to um but I think if we're able to kind of connect with people who are going through a similar thing get advice get support and just feel heard I think as human beings with whatever we're going through we just want to feel heard so I think that in itself can be a real like avenue for hope and and just knowing that, yes, it's a long road, <laughs> uh, but you don't have to go it alone. Yeah, that's amazing. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing that and being so kind of open and honest about your experience with it. And that last point there, as you said, incredibly important. I think that that kind of gives us a perfect segue to finishing up, which is tell obviously people a little bit more about where uh, they can find your events, your support groups and all the other amazing things that you're doing. Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Instagram. Everything's This Independent Life, so it's it's pretty easy. But Instagram at This Independent Life, you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Um, I post a lot on there as well as Instagram. Those are my two main ones, Rebecca Lloyd, um, or This Independent Life as well. I started a TikTok. There's one video there, which is the highlight reel from the conference. I think you actually feature in it Yay. a little bit. Um, so yeah, TikTok and YouTube are in the works. Um, and you can also follow, you can sign up to my newsletter on my website, which again, 
there sort of monthly um, in the process of kind of figuring that out. But I post about everything, yeah, mainly on Instagram and LinkedIn. So I've got events coming up, um, how to work with me as well. I do, so I do events, but I also do work with workplaces, organizations, businesses. So doing talks on navigating women's health is kind of like my sort of signature one. But I also do kind of wider talks I've just launched a program actually so now I'm looking at doing more since doing the the research looking at doing more kind of managerial training kind of ongoing group session support as well as kind of online resources really kind of whatever people need but a bit more of a holistic program because I was hearing that actually a lot of organizations really want to help but they don't really know like where to start um so really really excited about that and really really excited to yeah just be like having more of these conversations I have a podcast as well called This Independent Life, um, where I interview people who are doing something to support independence for women. So a lot of people there kind of doing women's health startups and just really passionate, to be honest, about kind of providing a platform and a space where people who are living with or kind of experiencing these conditions, but people who are also working in the space to actually improve it are able to come together. And we're just able to kind of collectively work towards the common goal of you know creating a positive future and kind of change for women's health for women but society generally so yeah I'm just really grateful that you invited me to be part of this it's been lovely oh and thank you just, yeah it's been amazing and I love what you're doing and yeah it was such a fortuitous like you coming to the conference and then chatting and I just think this is a perfect example of what can happen and what can come out of you know people coming together to work towards a common goal so yeah I'm just really grateful oh thank you me too yeah I'm glad something good came from it because honestly that was what that was a really I was about to say one of the worst days of my life but that'd be a bit extreme <laughs> but it was such like a harrowing painful day to hear all of those women talk um that part of me was just like I almost wish I didn't go in a way <laughs> but obviously that doesn't that doesn't actually help solve the problem but it was a really great day um, but also really, yeah, obviously always really difficult to kind of listen to people's experiences with that. But yeah, super grateful for your work. Obviously, a few of my clients are in your support group, which I really appreciate. I'll always do the best I can to support female clients with endometriosis, of course, but there's only so much I'm ever going to be able to do when, you know, I don't I kind of have that experience and I'm not going through it myself. So yeah, I'm really grateful for your work. So that's allowed me to kind of help be better support my clients, like through your kind of through your community. So thank you very much for what you do. No, my pleasure. And actually, one thing I've got to say, if people who have endometriosis want to join the WhatsApp support group, you just need to message me your number. So you can send it again on Instagram, LinkedIn. You can email me actually as well, Rebecca at thisindependentlife.co, or you can reach out to me on my website. Um, anyone is welcome. It's just a space to kind of ask questions, get advice. I know you've you've referred a few people to me. And yeah, yeah that's again, it's all it's word of mouth. It's just like sharing and, and connecting people. So yeah, but no, thank you so much. It's been amazing. If you've enjoyed today's episode, it would be amazing if you could do us a massive favor and leave us a review and even if possible, a comment. The reason why this is so useful for us is it allows us to know which type of content and which guests are best going to be relevant for you and your goals so that we can continue to make the podcast even better for you in the future. Thank you so much so far for all of your support on the Women's Wellness Show.